Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention against the machines of oppression, mechanical, algorithmic, and imaginary. This is the place to get infected, not with COVID-19, but with the virus of compassion. Yes, it's painful to feel, but it's the only path to retrieving our collective nature. There's one thing going on here, and we get to play along. Playing for Team Human today, Wall Street Journal baseball writer and the author of Swing Kings, Jared Diamond. Baseball is such a weird game in so many ways, and it's so unpredictable who wins and who loses. And the beauty of it is that you truly don't know what's going to happen every year. And no computer could ever predict who's going to win the World Series. No one ever comes close. And it's good that they're not. And I hope they never are, because what becomes the point if we know what's going to happen beforehand? Jared will be showing us how winning isn't always the best thing for the game. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Lots going on. I hope our new weekly schedule is providing some additional comfort. You're not alone, even though I guess it does feel like that. Thanks to all of our new patrons for making this possible with your generous subscriptions, including Marcus Squirrel, Nick Hurd, Edward Newman, Tony Scola, and Daniel Erickson. You too can become a Team Human subscriber and get special stuff by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. We got a monologue topic request from one of our patrons. It's actually a premium at one of the higher monthly levels. It comes from new subscriber Christine, who asks, I'm particularly interested in Doug's thoughts on the impact of COVID on artists and the music industry. It is clear, to me at least, that the overall impact of this crisis is to go local in so many ways. What does that mean for artists? How can we reimagine ways to value the gift of the arts in a post-COVID world, if there ever will be such a thing? That's an interesting question. 
in one sense, I was thinking things would go the other way, not towards local, not towards local theater because we can't gather, not towards local music because we can't gather. I'm not even towards local art because what we're going to disinfect the <laughs> sculpture or the painting that somebody hands us. In some ways, you know, now that we're not able to gather locally, we're gathering online and in increasingly granular affinity groups. I mean, on the one hand, I feel like there is a human element to this. It's smaller stuff. There's something that even feels local. You know, a lot of the Broadway shows and theater pieces, because they're not able to perform anymore, they're doing weekly Zooms where you can see, you know, Patti LuPone sing a song from Company and even though these are stars, they're Broadway stars, something strikes me about the fact that they're a smaller level of star. That, you know, Broadway, I know it's big, but it's not, it's not Hollywood. It's not television. We're not watching Brad Pitt do a, a monologue or Taylor Swift do a song. That's not what we're really sitting around watching. We're watching theater people, these weird little tribes gather around. You know what I mean? In terms of America, you know, that's not like these are not giant superstars. They're, they're more niche. They're more human. They're more local, if not physically local, then temperamentally local. You sort of like what we were talking about back in the early days of the internet, that everyone was going to be able to find their own tribe, and then how that tribalism got shifted into consumerism. It became brand tribes rather than, than human tribes. But there's, there's that smaller stuff. DJs are there. They're, they're gathering hundreds of thousands of people. But even some of those feel local in spirit. Certain people know who Diplo is or who Marshmallow is or this one or that one. And they're partying with just 10,000 other people you know, on the, on the phone. But it would have been the rave or the, the EDM party that they would have gone to. I guess my hope and concern during all this is the way location, physical location, can become less, not more important in this era of entirely virtual music. You know, we're getting into extremely specific clusters. I mean, for me, you know, lately I found I was getting into delight and then weird delight, you know, delight that people don't generally have, getting weird tapes from my friends and stuff, and, and Neil Young. And I've been going down both those memory holes over the last couple of weeks, delight and Neil Young and associated groups. And I'm finding other fans of these bands, even more avid than myself, who are also being drawn further and further in. You know, it's that radicalization principle where you, know, you watch one YouTube and then you get a more extreme version. But the interesting part about all this to me is that I'm finding myself more attracted to the music and art that I know and may have forgotten about than I am in discovering new stuff. You know, in art, I'm looking back, I was just into the period of, of Keith Haring and Kenny Scharf and this sort of, you know, the late 80s, early 90s pop art for some reason. I guess it came along with Delight as early 90s music. But it's stuff I've forgotten. I feel I need music 
in in a different way. It's more about kind of retrieving my sense of home and stability. I guess it's a little bit like when the you know old person votes for Biden, right? Because he's familiar, right? I've been playing uh, Mazzy Star and ELO and Bardo Pond. So I may actually just, in, in terms of art and culture, I may just get increasingly siloed, you know, deeper into what I know with less discovery. So yes, it's local, but it's a different kind of local, more like finding this online tribe, this little fragmented groups. And I feel like we're forming communities online that, you know, hopefully they're ephemeral and We'll miss them in a certain way when we return to regular life. But once regular life opens up again, we may become more conscious of what we were missing. You know, that these affinity groups, these online little tribes are really here to help imitate that tribal, cultural, specific connection that you get by going to your local bar and hearing the local band play. You know, that band before it makes it. You know, your local clubs, your local artists, the people who are there who you could look in their eyes and not experience generic art. I know my daughter, when I took her to see Les Miserables on Broadway. It was the revival of it. But still, I took her to see that. And she said afterwards that she liked the production at our high school better. And I was like, why? And she understood, you know, the music, the singing, the whatever was better on Broadway. But she said, it's because, you know, you can't really understand the part if you don't know who the person is who's playing that role. You know, if you don't know the person, then how do you know what the character is? So for her, the interesting part was how different is this character from the person she knows? that it's not anonymous, that you're going to the play to watch your friend in the play, um, that that's the majority of the interest for her. And I think we're going to get a lot of that. You know, we're all watching in our Netflix shows or doing whatever we do. I do think that when we come back, we will get some of what Christine is thinking about, this sense of not just local, but non-anonymous, specific, relationship-oriented. I want to know who that person is, and not by reading some fanzine. I want this to be a person who's actually in my life. I do think, assuming we get out of this, which I I shouldn't even joke like that, of course we're going to get out of this, that when we're out of this, whatever that looks like, um, people are going to be valuing the human, the interpersonal, the party that is real life. I'm Master Taylor, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Fred Turner, and I'm on Team Human. Hi, this is Christine Rose Steifer. I am an activist, a musician, and a user experience designer. And I'm on Team Human. I'm Gail Bradbrook. I'm from Extinction Rebellion, and I'm also on Team Human. You're on Team Human. Our guest today is the author of a baseball book, Jared Diamond. I almost called this episode Runs, Germs, and Steals. But no, it's not that Jared Diamond. And here we are talking about baseball when the stadiums are all closed. But we're not really talking about baseball anyway. To me, Jared's new book, The Swing King, says more about the nature of the human being and how we continue to assert our weirdness and uniqueness, even in the face of systems and technologies that seek to reduce us to mere probabilities. I got originally concerned about 
computer automation in baseball, when Moneyball and Sabermetrics and all this kinds of analysis of players came in, that on the one hand, I was a kid who played Stratomatic baseball and Stratomatic football. <laughs> I played Stratomatic baseball with the dice, of course. My right. dad played it as a kid. And he introduced it to me. And we used to play it when I was a kid all the time. And it was great for people who don't know. The Stratomatic games, basically, they used the collected stats on different players and teams to create these cards that you could then use to both strategize a game and put certain players in. And their chance of getting a hit or getting a touchdown or completing a pass were based on like the combination of the quarterback stats and the receiver's stat and what the defense did. So it was like a very early computer-type game without any computers. It was MLB the show before they were a PlayStation. But that to me was sort of the beginning of thinking, oh, players have stats and the stats determine what they're going to do. And then we know from the Moneyball story and the movie and the book that some folks came along who said, oh, we could really use these kinds of analysis and computers to figure out what players are being underpaid now based on how much they get on base and what they do versus who's being overpaid. And now we can very efficiently get a team together using stats that we couldn't before. And that in part led to fantasy baseball, because now that we have stats on different players, we can start assembling teams, fantasy teams, based on what we know about these different players and then see how they do and all that. But it started to worry me, though, as we start looking at players individually from their statistics, that we lose our appreciation for how they fit into an entire team, that we lose the group spirit of baseball as we focus on individual players and their stats. I mean, do you feel that that's true? That's what's so interesting about baseball compared to every other team sport. And the reason baseball itself lends itself to that way of thinking is although it is a team sport, it's different than every other team sport insofar that the players don't ever interact with each other. What baseball basically is, is a series of one-on-one interactions that continue over the course of the game. It's just batter versus pitcher, batter versus pitcher. You don't have to share the ball the way you do in the NBA. In the NFL, you don't have to to worry about, uh, well, there's an offense and a defense, and how's the line, and how's the pass rush, and how's this, and how's that. In baseball, it's just you have the pitcher, and you have the batter, and yeah, you have defenders, but their impact is relatively minimal compared to other sports. So it lends itself to this way of thinking because it becomes just a game of probabilities. How often does this pitcher uh, give up runs? How often does this batter get hits? You put those things together and suddenly you have a pretty good understanding of how the game is going to go. And that sort of alienates some people who say, well, look, it's still human beings playing the game and they have emotions and feelings and there's pressures and different situations and how do players respond to them. And that bothers some people where when it gets reduced to this numbers game. And I think what's happened since Moneyball, which now is getting close to 20 years old, which is amazing, but it's almost 20 years old now. I think what people have realized that maybe uh, we went too far in that direction. There was at one point, this big push in the baseball community that there was no such thing as clutch hitting, that the idea of a hitter being able to elevate his game or shrink in pressure situations doesn't exist. It's just a myth in our heads. And in reality, it's just the numbers game. Well, now that line of thinking has been pretty much debunked. Even 
the most stats-oriented people in baseball have since revamped their thoughts and come to the conclusion that while we might not be able to explain it, uh, clearly clutch hitting is something that exists. And there are players that seem to do better or worse depending on the pressure situation. Well, that makes sense. A computer would believe that too. You would think. Yeah, it's a nervous moment. So this person does better with more cortisol in their blood than that person does. Exactly. And now baseball is finally realizing there is a human component to the game. So I think we're starting to find a happy medium to some extent. But they're finding a stat for the human component. Okay, so this person gets plus three on clutch events, and that person gets minus two. They're trying to understand now, the big question is try to understand the value of clubhouse chemistry. Because where the team aspect of baseball does come in is in the clubhouse itself. Because baseball players have a lot of time together and a lot of downtime that other sports don't have. The biggest job of the baseball manager is not actually to coach the team during the game. It pretty much runs on autopilot during the game. It's to manage the personalities over six months. They're together every day. Uh, they're in the clubhouse for four hours a day together before the game starts. These guys show up to a seven o'clock game at like one or two in the afternoon, and they're just sitting in the clubhouse doing whatever they do. So that's the real chemistry right. that baseball is trying to understand is how much do these relationships off the field actually affect the performance on the field? I think they would because they're almost, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're kids. They're in their early 20s, a lot of them. They tease each other and stuff, right? Are there popular ones and unpopular ones? And <laughs> is uh, it high school? Clubhouse is a very strange place. It really is. Uh, <laughs> uh, it really is a weird place. Like I get to spend time in them as part of my job at the Wall Street Journal. You spend a lot of time in clubhouses doing interviews. And granted, I'll never see the true dynamic when there's no media in there, I'm sure, that they behave differently when they know they're being watched and there's cameras in the room. But that said, you can still glean a lot from the time you do spend in there in terms of who's interacting with who. How is the clubhouse laid out? That's a big thing. When I first started doing this job, and it still exists on many teams, the clubhouse was incredibly segregated, where all of the American players lockered near each other's, and then there was like the Latin corner, where all the Latin players would sort of have their area of the clubhouse oh. and have their music, and would basically only spend time together. That's like a prison yard almost, you know? And I don't think it was intentional, but that's right. sort of how it, it, it sort of naturally worked out. So now smart teams are saying, we're going to make sure that doesn't happen. We're going to do, do everything we can our power to put the Latin players' lockers next to American players and try to avoid that sort of segregation. The Chicago Cubs, they recently uh, redid their home clubhouse at Wrigley Field. They had had this very old, dumpy clubhouse for a million years. And finally, they rebuilt it completely in a new area, just rebuilt the whole thing. They intentionally decided to build the clubhouse in a circle where every locker could see every other. And that was sort of after trying to understand how do we foster chemistry? And they determined this circle structure would be better than the traditional sort of rectangle because this way there's no corners and everyone has sort of walked past other people's lockers to get somewhere. You can't just cut across the room and out. And the Cubs did win the World Series in 2016. It's worked out pretty well since then. It's interesting because you'd think that teams would like their hierarchies. And then you, like, you put you know, the captain or the really good outfielder gets like a corner locker. That is what, you yeah. Know? Most teams, the best <laughs> player gets the corner locker right by the, either by the exit door or by the door to the kitchen back area. That right. Very, and, Often the best players will get double-sized lockers. 
So there's always that's often negotiated in their contracts that a great player gets two lockers instead of one to put whatever. <laughs> and everybody else has. sees it though. These are the human issues that baseball is trying to understand. Is like how does all of this actually impact our performance? How how does the clubhouse environment impact things when it's seven o'clock and we're out there on the field? Digital technologies one way or another, tend to emphasize individuality over our collective team and social natures. So for most of us, it's like, oh, you're sitting on your, you know, Facebook and it atomizes you from other people. You know, we experience that. But as baseball gets more digital, I find that a lot of players are sort of playing against their own stats more than they are for the team benefit. When a player knows that his stats, that the computer stats are going to matter to how much money he's going to make the next year, is he less likely to then do a sacrifice fly or bunt or something because it's going to be bad for his career? This is a huge issue as well. And it's it's absolutely true, this idea of well, what do players really care about? Do they really care about winning or do they just care about themselves. Because they're not the same thing. It used to be back at Casey at the bat, winning the game was all that mattered. You win and your team knows what you did. And now that you're playing against a computer that's looking at you as an individual, what's best for the team and what's best for you are two different things. I mean, that feels like that's digital capitalism in a nutshell. And even going back, forget Casey in the bat, even going back to say the 50s, 60s, when players didn't make nearly as much money as they make now, you received a bonus for winning the World Series, or, or you still do, but that bonus of winning the World Series back then was enormous for players relative to how much they usually made. So there was this incredible incentive to win the World Series because they directly impacted, they could double your salary or more depending, because they made so much less back then. But now the minimum salary is $500,000. The average salary is over $4 million. And while you're still getting a bonus for winning the World Series, uh, it's in the hundreds of thousands, maybe, as opposed to the average of $4 million that you're making. So while it's nice and you want to win the World Series, because who doesn't, it's no longer the primary goal for many players. The primary goal is to get a contract. Now, look, a lot changes for older players. That is one thing that we see. Younger players are not paid, relatively speaking, not very well paid by baseball standards. They tend to make the major league minimum for the first three years of their career. For the next three years of the career, they're bound by salary arbitration. Uh, you don't become a free agent until after you've been in the major leagues for six years. So for six years, you're just sort of bound to your team. And you might have been injured by then, and it's over. Exactly. And a lot of players never make it to free agency for a variety of reasons. But if you do make it to free agency and you do get that multi-year contract, because baseball contracts are guaranteed. It's not like the NFL where you could just get cut and they don't have to pay you. In baseball, every single cent that you sign for, you get no matter what. Uh, once you have that security, players' attitudes change. It's why you see veteran players who have never won a World Series suddenly chasing rings, going to try to find to sign with a team they think could win one. It sort of comes with aging, right? So your priorities start to change once you know that you're financially secure. Right, then you could go for glory and other stuff. Exactly, try to get that ring. It secures your legacy, because it does. In the eyes of fans, players who don't have championships 
it impacts how they're thought about in the long term. And how much money they'll make also. Because then if they get the ring, then maybe they get in the Hall of Fame and then they get more car commercials and stuff later. Right. You become a, a local legend in your community. If, if, you, if you lead the Minnesota Twins to the World Series, you'll never have to buy a drink in Minneapolis for the rest of your life. Right. A beloved player. I mean, a guy like, uh, uh, say, Wilmer Flores could come back to New York and get ten grand for showing up at a Ford dealership any day of the week. Right. Because he <laughs> cried on the field that time and then made a Mets hero forever. He will be. Sorry. I mean, my daughter has been boycotting the Mets since he left. I'm trying to explain that it wasn't their choice, you know, <laughs> that, that, that he went, they didn't fire him, but um, no, she's unforgiving. Explain to her that in, players need to go make their money in free agency and he's exercising his hard fought right to become a free agent. He's supporting labor by doing so. I guess that she thinks that the Mets should have just paid whatever anyone else would have paid in order to keep him. Oh, no, that's fine. Blame the team. Just blame the team, (laughs) not the player. That's why I always tell fans you get mad at players for leaving. No, no. The player was exercising his right as a laborer to become a free agent. It's the team that should have paid more to keep him. Yeah, I know. But when you see the laborer, like, okay, so I'm going here because I can get 23 million instead of 21 million. That's when we start to resent it. Right. It's hard because the numbers are so big. It is hard for most the average person, I think, to put themselves in those shoes. Really, all these players are doing is just going to a company that's willing to pay them more, which just about any person would do. Uh, But because the numbers are so astronomical, it's hard to wrap our heads around. I think that's the case for anyone that has a normal person job. But I do feel like certain aspects of the game are getting dehumanized. So, you know, in particular, I know there's some debate about replacing human umpires with laser computer things to see whether something was a ball or a strike. And I get it from the perspective of we want baseball to be fair, fair according to the rules. And now we're really going to know if the ball was in the batter's box or not. But what is fair and what is the game? And isn't part of the game about a player, you know, making his strike zone look different to the ump or a pitcher being able not just to fool the player, but fool the ump with the ball. Or you get to learn about a particular umpire and what he sees and what he doesn't, what he considers the strike zone and what he doesn't, that these contours are part of the, the humanity of baseball. The teams get scouting reports on umpires. You literally, every game, you know who's umping home plate, and you get a scouting <laughs> report on wh- what does this umpire call? What is really? his is, so is they go, fa- Oh, so this umpire lets the ball favors, go over his shoulder. He favors pitchers. His strike zone's a little smaller. He calls higher strikes, but he doesn't call the low strikes, and that influences uh, how you go about playing the game. That exists. And yes, baseball is actively trying to eliminate that. Baseball is experimenting with a robot strike zone that would be called uh, completely with computers. And they're, they want to move full steam ahead with it. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen right away. But in the next five years, do I think we'll see it in Major League Baseball? Yeah, I think it's very possible. And there's, there's some things that are going to be lost. Right now, one of the big areas of study in baseball, I guess you would call it, is what's known as catcher framing, which is how the catcher receives the pitch, catches the ball to make it look like a strike, even if it's not. And catchers, of course, because everything is made into a number in 2020, catchers are actually evaluated by teams based on their ability to do that. 
Right. And isn't that something they teach in catcher school? Absolutely. How do you receive the ball so that you could trick the umpire into thinking that pitch that was three inches off the plate was actually over the outside corner? And catchers that are able to do that well are incredibly valuable. And that skill will be completely eliminated. Also, what else is going to be eliminated is when the batter thinks it was a ball and the guy calls strike and the batter turns to the umpire and is like, how can you do that? And they get in that fight and you don't know if the guy's going to use bad language or get kicked out of the game, that that is part of why we go. And it's not as bad as like a hockey hockey fans go because they want to see Smith or somebody Black. whack someone with yeah. a stick. That may be wrong, but this is the whole thing. Is he going to get mad? Is the manager going to come out and start yelling at the guy too and kicking dirt? And if you eliminate those, you know, because you can't do that to a computer, then aren't we taking the the raw humanity out of the game? And we might as well have machines playing it like they are. The good news is players are still arguing with the computer. We've seen it. There have been players who have been ejected for arguing with the robot strike zone because it already, <laughs> it already really? exists. It already exists in the. So where do they yell? In the independent baseball league, there's an independent baseball league that sort of in in a partnership with MLB tested the robot strike zone last season, and they're going to be doing it again, as far as I know. If there is a season this year, and there were some examples of managers and coaches getting ejected for screaming at the home plate umpire because they didn't like how the robot was calling the game. There's a human behind the plate in the black turtle outfit. Yes. Being the umpire, but he's not calling it. The um, the home plate umpire is in the independent leagues. There's a home plate umpire there wearing an earpiece yeah. uh, that <laughs> he hears in his ear, ball or strike. He signals the call one way or the other. And that umpire is also there to make calls at home plate. You know, if there's a play at the plate. Oh, he's got some emergency duties, but this is like a, a medical doctor taking his instructions from a computer as to what to tell the patient. I mean, it's the human has become the object of the computer's judgment. We already see it in Major League Baseball, not with the strike zone yet, but instant replay, right? That's all sports now have instant replay. If there's a bad call, now you're these teams are able to ask for replay checks and have calls overturned based on uh, what the the monitor says. Now, granted, they would argue, well, we're just getting the calls right. But yes, it's taken away uh, these arguments. Managers coming out and storming and kicking dirt and getting thrown out. And some people would argue, well, look, look at all the terrible calls that have impacted history. The Don Denkinger call in the World Series back in the 80s that changed the outcome of the World Series or more recently, Jim Joyce uh, made a bad call on what would have been the final out of a perfect game by Tigers pitcher Armando Galarraga. We know that was a bad call. That pitcher should have thrown a perfect game that day. By, but he did throw the perfect game, and it was taken away by a bad call by the umpire. Now, do we want to get rid of that? Some people would say yes. Some people would say no. The argument for instant replay is that, well, we're not getting rid of the human element. It's just that the players are the humans, and they are the ones that should determine the outcome, not the umpires. Others would say, well, all of this, the relationship between the players and the managers and the umpires, that is all part of the beauty of the game. And ultimately, does it really matter who wins and loses from a fan perspective as much as sort of the overall aesthetic experience 
of watching the game. I think all sports are, are, are wrestling with this. Well, yeah, but the win and lose, is it a win or a lose? Is it a one or a zero? Is it a yes or a no? Now we're back to digital. That digital values are who won, who lost. We got to know this because we're going to put the stat in the thing. Human values are, well, he kind of pitched it. He kind of pitched a perfect game, but it's not going to count as a perfect game. That's human. That's the ambiguity of human existence. That's part of what sports are for, is to experience the righteous indignation of that situation. It's wrong. It really is wrong. How am I going to deal with that? When it's just a game, you get to practice dealing with that paradox, with that ambiguity, because you're going to have to deal with it in real life as well. You know what I mean? That's sort of the, the whole point of sports is to have a kind of a sacred circle around a simulation of an urgent life mission in order to practice your emotions. And this is something that drives me so crazy about the modern sports culture. And every time I bring this up uh, to almost everybody, I think I finally found my audience. Because every time I bring up this point, I get roundly destroyed on social media by sports fans, as I am one, but I guess I'm a different one. I think it's terrible that the modern sports culture has relegated everything into this championship or bust mindset that the only thing that matters and the only value you get out of sports is if your team wins the championship. And there are so many reasons why I fundamentally disagree with that way of thinking about it. First and foremost, what it's created in the sports world is that that attitude applies to teams as well. They believe that if they do not win the championship, there was essentially no point of even playing at all. So therefore, if their team is not good enough in their mind, doesn't have a good enough statistical odds to win the World Series, there is then no reason to even try to be good. So therefore, we should make our team as bad as possible so we could get better draft picks so in the future we could win the World Series. One, I think that completely goes against sort of the, the ethos of sports, of just fair competition. And two, I think it's insulting to fans who aren't just watching or shouldn't just be watching because their team is going to win a championship. Only one team a year can win the World Series. The experience of following the team every day for six months, that is where the value is to me. I covered the Mets for the Wall Street Journal in 2015. The Mets went to the World Series that year. They didn't win the World Series. They lost to the Kansas City Royals. And I heard here still to this day from Mets fans who say that whole season was a waste because they didn't win the World Series. And that, to me, is completely insane because you got ah. to go on that experience from being terrible midway through the season to this incredible rise, getting to the World Series. And yeah, they lost. But at the end of the day, the memories of that summer and that fall... Oh. Yeah, that Incredible. was one of the great series of all. That was like, you know, the 1995 Knicks with John Starks and, and Ewing and Oakley. And yeah, we lost. But oh, my God. But you you know, still had the ride. You still had the ride. I mean, and that, that Mets did. We got Cespedes. We got Murphy. Daniel Murphy. Murphy. Yeah. I mean, out of nowhere, crying on the field. You got Chase Utley sliding into Ruben Tejada and breaking his leg. And the experience and he was of never that, the same. Yeah, but then after that, booing Chase Utley. That's all part of it. Even this past year with the Mets, they didn't even make the playoffs. And they were not very good about halfway through the season. It looked like they weren't going anywhere. And there were a lot of Mets fans, some people that said, well, they should start trading players away. They should make the team worse because they're out of it. 
Well, they didn't do that. They decided to try to make the team better. And they had this incredible run in the second half. They came, I think, a game or two away from making the playoffs. And they didn't make it. But if you're a Mets fan, that was such a fun two months when in August and September when they were surging and almost making it. I know that almostness that, I mean, there's something about a team like, and maybe this is just giving too much away of myself, but there's something about a team like the Mets or the Cubbies, the kind of the cute underdog human team, as opposed to like the Yankees, you know, these big, strong, man, tough, wealthy teams that it engenders a different kind of a fun. Oh, yeah. I think baseball changed fundamentally in 2004 when the Red Sox won the World Series. Uh, They hadn't won since 1918. And that Yankee-Red Sox rivalry was such a big part of the fabric of the game. And the fact that the Yankees always won and the Red Sox, it wasn't that the Red Sox lost. There was a difference between the Red Sox and the Cubs. The Cubs never won the World Series, and they were always terrible. They were, for most of that time, (laughs) just a bad baseball team. And it was different. With the Red Sox, part of what made them so compelling is they were often very, very good. And it seemed to defy, just defy math that they could not win it. And waiting to see what terrible fate would befall the Red Sox was a part of the game. And now that they've won four times, it has changed, I think, sort of the fabric of the sport. Well, it's like the story, the mythology has changed. Right. That Yankee-Red Sox rivalry is not the same anymore now that the Red Sox have won. Even things like Bill Buckner. Part of what made that Bill Buckner error in 1986 so compelling was that it happened to the Red Sox. And it was just another example of this terrible thing happened to the Red Sox or Aaron Boone's home run in 2003 or whatever other craziness has happened to the Red Sox through the years. Once you win one, that's gone. It's all gone for better or for worse. I want to get back to the big point that you were making about how it's so terrible that with sports, you either win the championship or you don't. And it, it seems to people as if nothing else matters than that very, very silly binary, that that same binary has affected the swing, as you write so eloquently in the book. You have this one section where um, Josh Donaldson, who It's one of my favorite players of all time, actually, an amazing, amazing player. Um, And you're talking about how he changed his swing. And he says, um, if you're 10 years old and your coach says, get on top of the ball, tell him no. Because in the big leagues, these things they call ground balls are outs. They don't pay you for ground balls. They pay you for doubles. They pay you for homers. Now it's not even doubles. Homers. Part of baseball used to be you get a guy on first, you try to get him in scoring position, and you get this wonderful thing eventually. It's sort of like a circular economy that works, a resilient economy where you have a guy on first, second, third, maybe you only have one out, and then all you need is another single, another single, another single, and you keep scoring. You get on first and you force them onto home. And that's when teams really start getting that sense of rhythm and a collective activity. We as a team are pushing this train, just an assembly line of players making it to, to the home plate. Now it's every man for himself. You get to bat and you got to get a home run or nothing. That's a really sad thing to happen to baseball, no? You know, you're making me think as you describe it of that old Bugs Bunny uh, cartoon with the conga line of all of the, all of the baseball players running around the field in a conga line. It's a famous Bugs Bunny cartoon, I think, from the 40s. They'd stand in the line and walk around the field, and everyone was scoring. 
And that does not happen anymore. And there's a few reasons for it. Look, I understand why baseball is developed this way. Part of the problem is that it's really hard. Baseball is really hard <laughs> to get hits that way, to expect four or five players in a row to all succeed. Remember, uh, if you hit 300, if you get on, if you get a hit 30% of the time, you're a Hall of Famer in Major League Baseball. Right. But that means you're not getting a hit 70% of the time. Right. And that's if you're the best player. (laughs) If the player that leads the league in batting average might hit 330, 340. So, you know, you could pretty easy math there. That's 33% of the time you get a hit. That means you're the best player in baseball, best hitter in baseball if you do that. So statistically, it seems like it might not be the smartest decision to try to just rely on four guys in a row to to have that one in three, or in most cases, a lot less than one in three chance. So how do you score? You do it in one swing, hit the ball out of the ballpark. And that's why, in part, this is happening. Additionally, pitching is really good now. Everybody throws 100 miles an hour. When I was a kid, uh, if you threw 95, that was really impressive. Now it seems like everybody throws 95, 96, 98. 99. Oh, it's the price of admission. Right, even harder. We've seen some guys hit 102, 103, which we thought was impossible because of technology and, and other things. Well, and because we're sacrificing their arms. Well, I mean, that too. their well, arms so, literally crumble under the pressure. Yes, a lot of uh, ligament tears. But we also see sliders and curveballs that seem to move in ways that defy the laws of physics now uh, because of the whole study of pitch design and how do we spin the ball. and also, because of technology again, well, fielders are positioned differently. Fielders are now positioned not in their normal stations, but they are placed exactly where they know you're most likely to hit the ball. Which also seems like cheating in a way that, you know, one of our good hitters comes up and they all move. They're like, they've got some computer that says, okay, stand right here. You stand there. Yes. And then you also have, uh, because of better understanding of statistics, you never face, a, for instance, a pitcher who's tired anymore because teams no longer let their pitchers go as deep into the game because we now know statistically that performance decreases enormously as you go later into the game. They start maximizing and optimizing how they use their bullpens to ensure that whenever you face somebody, that pitcher was designed in a laboratory to get you and only you out. Sometimes they bring out a pitcher for one batter. It's like, okay. Now let's get him because that batter doesn't do well against Joe. All right, Joe, come on. So baseball has legislated that out of the game. If there's a season in 2020, there's a new rule that is supposed to start in whatever happens this year, which is you have to face three batters or finish the inning. That is the new rule. And that's because of this. You have to face at least three batters or finish the inning. So if you come in with two outs and you get the guy out, you could then exit the game. It's good for everybody, though, because now you don't need quite as deep a bullpen. You know, you don't need 90 extra pitchers. And plus, it's going to speed up the game because they go to commercials every time they change the pitcher. Those pitching cages are brutal because they add five, six minutes of the game of literally nothing happening. And they were happening more and more and more. So that's why baseball did this. And hopefully it changes some of that calculation about how batters approach their, their craft. Doesn't all that changing, all that figuring, all that computer work, doesn't it repress some of the magic? I know magic's not real, but I think maybe magic is real, right? So 
do these moments that happen when a team gets on a roll and it's magic and everyone gets hits and no matter what pitcher the bad guys put in, we're going to keep getting more hits because God is just on our side now. It's just working. And you see the players all believe it. They all have like little crosses and rituals and they'll touch this and touch that before every swing and They put the things in their locker with their left hand rather than their right hand. And it's a Wednesday, so I'm going to step out of the clubhouse with my left foot. This stuff works, right? They think it works, (laughs) and therefore it does. That's the amazing thing about it. It must work. That's what's amazing about these superstitions. They work if you believe they work. And that's what's so crazy about – we're talking about Moneyball. Everyone thinks of Moneyball as the backbone of the statistical revolution in baseball, and in many ways it was. But what was so amazing about that 2002 Oakland A's team that Michael Lewis wrote about in Moneyball is that they went on a 20-game winning streak in August and September. That was, if you remember the movie Moneyball, that was the climactic moment when they won that 20th game in a row. And there are no statistics on earth that could get you to a 20-game winning streak, that could ever predict a 20-game winning streak in baseball. That is the magic that you're talking about. And that was the 2002 A's. The Moneyball A's became that because of a completely statistical anomaly, which was a 20-game winning streak. And is, it is still is just an unbelievable achievement that you can never explain. Well, you could argue the reason why it unleashed the magic is because here are these players who are, have been chronically underestimated by their own teams. And finally, a guy says, no, because of my computers, I recognize that you actually have the juice. And now all these underdogs are together, like, this guy believes in us. It unleashed their potential. I would love to believe that's true. I want to believe it. (laughs) I do. I do. I want to believe that's true because I want to believe that sports has that intangible quality. It's, It's what's great about baseball. There is a this incredible magic to it, nostalgia. You think of Field of Dreams and James Earl Jones talking about sort of the magic of baseball and the fabric of America. I personally want to feel that. And I still do as a baseball fan. Uh, but as a baseball writer, uh, I also recognize just what goes in to all these decisions and these front offices now that run baseball teams. Think about who get who works in baseball now. It used to be like ex-players and lifetime baseball people. Now these baseball teams are competing for talent, not with baseball people, but they're competing with like Google and Apple and whatever, Amazon, all these big tech companies. That's in many ways what baseball has become. And I think it's up to the fan to sort of in some ways block that out and still appreciate the game for the magic that I think it still has, even if it's being run like any other sort of big tech company. Right. Well, everything I guess is being run, you know, like some, some big tech company now. In some ways, the the beauty of that is it makes the humanity and the weirdness all that much more stark against a background of money and technology. There's so much in baseball that just shouldn't be able to be explained by statistics. Baseball is such a weird game in so many ways, and it's so unpredictable who wins and who loses. And the beauty of it is that you truly don't know what's going to happen every year. And no computer could ever predict who's going to win the World Series. No one ever comes close, uh, despite all efforts that are made to project how many wins every team is going to have. They're never right, at least not for everybody. 
And it's good that they're not. And I hope they never are because what becomes the point if we know what's going to happen beforehand? If they do, then it's really over. That's why it's really interesting to me what they're doing right now. I guess it's only online that the MLB has this. I don't even understand exactly what's happening. So maybe you can explain it to me that I can now watch my Mets announcers online announce a game that's being played inside a computer. What is it? What am I even looking at? Is that how good a PS4, you know, PlayStation baseball games look? That's what the Mets have been doing. And other teams, too, they've been simulating the whole season during this break on MLB The Show, a PlayStation game where they've been literally just running computer versus computer and airing it online. And for one game recently, the Mets had their real announcers, their real TV announcers, broadcast this computerized game, digital game, as if, to some extent, as if it were real. And it was pretty weird. But frankly, I, ha- I have to admit, I'm a little ashamed to admit this. I think I actually watched a little bit of it because I was missing baseball so much. And it had nothing to do with the computerized game. It was about hearing those announcers. It, I know. It, that's the background well, noise of my life. Right. They're part of my life. I mean, and so much so, I mean, this is again, admitting weirdness. I mean, I love our announcers, you know, I, I, I love all, all three of them. They're great on TV and all that. And I watch them on SNY, even though I have to pay extra to have that channel on my TV set, which I resent. But if it's the seventh or eighth inning and the Mets had been winning and start losing, I immediately switch to radio because Gotta change it up. Exactly. I change it up, not not for myself, but for them. Because if I start listening to Howie on the radio, I feel like I can somehow alter the universe just a little bit and give them another chance. Oh, of course. Uh, uh, There's no, that is hundred percent real. You know, my dad, (laughs) my my dad always tells the story of uh, watching game six of the 1986 world series with some friends in the, their old apartment in the city and it was the ninth inning and you know, the Mets were obviously going to lose. It looked like and the Red Sox are going to win the world series. And my dad's friend uh, gets up and starts putting on his jacket, putting on his shoes. He goes, oh, you know, it's a bummer. What are you going to do? It looks like it's not going to happen. He's, he's getting ready. And then, and then the first Met gets a hit. And then he goes, all right, well, let me, he's still putting on his coat. Then another Met gets a hit. And now suddenly he refuses to leave. Doesn't sit down again, of course, because he now put on his jacket and his shoes and the Mets started having this rally. So he had to stand there in his coat and his sneakers for the whole inning until the Mets ended up coming back and winning that game. But of course, he couldn't sit back down and he couldn't leave because him standing up and putting on his jacket is why the Mets had that rally, of course. And that's how fans well, it should it could think. have been. That is how we think. And then these are people who make real decisions about real lives, about their investments, about their families. And here we are standing and wearing a coat in a hot apartment in order to prevent the Mets' new streak from stopping. <laughs> All right. It's like an announcer saying the words no hitter during a broadcast, right? That is just, you're not allowed to do that. You do that, no. you immediately ended the no hitter. And it's exactly it's like talking about the Scottish play during a rehearsal of something else. And it's completely absurd. And yet it isn't because, of course, if the announcer says no hitter, that's going to cosmically go through the the radio waves into the pitcher's brain, somehow combined with all of his electrical circuits and his synapses. And then the next guy was going to get a hit because that's just how it works. 
It's fascinating. And that's why it's also interesting to me that you write about baseball for the Wall Street Journal. I mean, I guess I knew the Wall Street Journal must have had sports in it, but I don't read it because I'm not one of those stock people, so I don't really look at it. But I guess all these business guys and women are reading uh, sports in the Wall Street Journal as their sports desk. I hope they are. They should be. The beauty of all, <laughs> the beauty of Wall Street Journal sports is that while we're the Wall Street Journal, we are not covering sports sort of strictly from a sports business perspective. Now, yes, we cover sports business because we are the Wall Street Journal. But so the goal of the Wall Street Journal sports section is to be as weird and wacky and creative and fun as possible. So people think of the Wall Street Journal as being really stuffy and being very business-like. Uh, but then they pick up the sports page and we're just like doing gags and having a good time. Now we do really important stuff too. And we break a lot of news. Uh, that's of course a big part of our mindset and our existence, but we never forget the value of a good laugh. Right. It is interesting. I mean, you do break a lot of news, I guess. And the way I know it is it'll come through on Twitter, you know, that the wall street journal will find out that somebody's being traded or something happened or so you do tend to scoop a lot of things. Interestingly enough, you know, more than, you know, maybe the Post or somebody. Well, we do different things. I think we have different goals. We're, like, the New York Post is going to try to break every single free agent signing or every single trade or every player who's sent down to the minor leagues. We don't spend any time on that. We don't care about that at all. But when we try to break news, we're trying to break the biggest stories with the biggest impact in sports. You know, I was I broke a bunch of news about the Astros cheating scandal and wrote some stories that generated a lot of news uh, about that, like big stories, stories that can't be replicated. So not things like trades. We don't really break that kind of news, but we do, I when we're doing our job right, break big news in the sports world that you know wouldn't be put out if we weren't the ones breaking it, which I think is the best kind of scoop. The best scoop is not the scoop that the team is going to announce 20 minutes later. It's the scoop that would never be put out there if you didn't write about it. And you normally you go there, right? There's like a place that the Wall Street Journal has. I do go to the office. Yeah, we're a different sort of newsroom. Most sports people, uh, journalists, never go to their office. Right. We all are in the office every day unless we're out. If I'm traveling, I, I travel a lot as well during the playoffs, during spring training, of course. And that's often the case with all of us. But uh, if we're not traveling, we're in the office. And I think it's an enormous advantage. And this actually probably fits in very well with your podcast, actually, is that I think it's an enormous advantage to Wall Street Journal sports that we have over many of our competitors, all of our competitors, is that our sports team is together every day. And we spend most of the day in the office just talking, talking about ideas, talking about stories, talking about weird stuff that leads to weird stories. And I don't know of any other sports desk, any other media outlet that actually ever spends any time together, ever, ever especially people that cover different sports. We're together every single day, and I think it's one of our greatest strengths. It leads to incredible collaboration and creativity because we are together as much as we are. It's got to be more fun, too. You know? <laughs> I think it's fun. I, our office environment, in sports at least, it's, yeah, we were working, but the value of being in the office isn't for working. We could work at home. like We could write our stories at home and do interviews on the phone at home. But what we do in the office and what I think we're missing right now because we're not in the office except for our sort of daily sports uh, video chat that we're doing every morning is just that time where we're just not on the phone, not necessarily writing, but we're just bouncing ideas off each other 
story ideas. Like, what are you working on? What's happening in your sport? Like, I cover baseball. You cover basketball. What's happening in your league? What's happening with this? And it's shocking how many, like, fun, interesting, creative stories just come out of those conversations. Well, I would love to be in some of those. So thank you. Thanks so much for writing about this. Obviously, I never anticipated releasing a book into this environment that we're living in right now. Uh, was not timing that one could have anticipated two years ago. But I hope for those for whom it is, it, the book is sort of a taste of the game that we are all missing. Because you know, I'm proud of it, even though I recognize that these are, are weird times. Yeah, no, it definitely gave me a, a sad hunger for getting to watch the game again, but it, it filled, filled some of that place in my heart. So thanks for doing that. I'm glad, I, I'm glad it's finally in the world, and I'm looking forward to baseball coming back. You've been on Team Human. Our guest today was the author of Swing Kings, Jared Diamond. Team Human was edited by Luke Robert Mason and produced by Josh Chapdelin. Thanks for listening, for supporting this show, and for keeping things in proportion. You are not alone. You're on Team Human. Our last best hope for peeps. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.